0: Welcome to the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast, the show that brings leading minds from the energy industry to discuss the challenges and trends that are transforming and modernizing our energy system. And a quick thank you to West Monroe, our sponsor of today's show. Now, let's talk energy. Jason Price, Energy Central podcast host and director with West Monroe, coming to you from New York City. And with me, as always, from Orlando, Florida, is Energy Central producer and community manager, Matt Chester. Matt, our guest today is a regular listener to the Power Perspectives podcast and brings an important and relevant perspective with energy equity to our audience. He is here today to discuss energy equity through a modern lens, particularly with clean energy innovations and emphasis of equity in President Biden's IIJA and the IRA. Our guest has been a champion of energy equity his entire career, and this topic is no stranger to the Energy Central community. Matt, given the many dimensions to this issue, can you please give our listeners a recap on past guests discussing this topic? Sure, Jason, and you're right. This is a topic that we're grateful to have discussed in a couple of different ways with multiple guests over the course of our uh, couple of years on the air. In fact, it's a topic that we have built one of our episode playlists around on our SoundCloud page that hosts the podcast, with that playlist being called Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity. There you'll find a conversation with NB Power on how they incorporate feedback and consideration of their local indigenous communities, an episode with a Pepco rep where we discuss how their innovative programs for new technologies are built with some community-benefiting results in mind, and even a conversation on how modern microgrid communities create new equitable energy opportunities on some specific island communities. And we're excited, of course, to add today's episode to that playlist as well. That's great. Excellent. That's a great starting point, but it's primarily from the voice of the utility. Now let's hear from the perspective of the community. Today, we're being joined by Larry Glover, CEO of the Glover Group. In this consulting work, Larry is known for his experience and expertise in helping energy leaders to engage effectively. effectively, efficiently, and most importantly, equitably with their local communities. I encourage our listeners, particularly those in the C-suite, to take note. No doubt you are working hard to address these issues that Larry is raising, but as we can all agree, there is always more that can be done. And he's here to share how this process, of course, is not a box to be checked off for the sake of doing the right thing, but rather a fundamental principle that can and should be integrated into the DNA of the power sector. This conversation is timely, full of substance and simply important. So let's get started. Larry Glover, welcome to the, today's episode of the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast.
1: Jason, thank you very much. I'm excited to participate.
0: Well, we're thrilled to have you here. So let's start with your background and how you got to where you are today in community advocacy around energy equity. You started your career in marketing and strategy communications, but take us through this journey to help us understand what got us to the Glover Group and why your voice matters.
1: Jason, this is a great place to start because my career and the energy the industry, but absolutely started out for apart. In undergraduate school, as a marketing major, I was not that energy guy. My two roommates were engineers and a third roommate who was an architect, much more suited for this industry. But I was a marketing communications guy. So after graduate school, I began working in brand management at Procter & Gamble. And for me, that experience boiled down to a couple of critical issues. The first is really a good understanding of consumerism and how to understand and analyze customers. The second is the ability to build a strategic business plan because we didn't build it for today. We built it for a long-term effect on customer generation. Following Proctor, I went to work for Coca-Cola in the non-beverage division, and I ran new products. One of the successes of my new product experience was a little product known as the drink box. You may know it if you had children. It's the little small box with the straw in it. I had the opportunity to be the first to develop and introduce that product nationally. That comes from, for me, out of this understanding of consumerism and how do we gauge consumers for long-term benefit. Following Coca-Cola, I did a stand at Sara Lee in new business development. Before I turned my experience on to the advertising industry. I've worked with major agencies such as Leo Burnett, YNR, McCann World Group, as well as some specialty agencies that focus on African-American, Hispanic, and Asian-American marketing. That's where I really gained my expertise and designation as a multicultural subject matter expert. So it's the integration of my career path and this energy space that really was significant for me. And in doing so, a couple of things just really jumped out of me. One of them, was that the customer relationship in the energy industry seemed to me to be way out of sync for where it really needs to be. So for me, Jason, it's always been about the customer and how we improve those relationships and how do we judge the impact on those customers. So when we talk LMI, low to moderate income consumers, it's absolutely in my wheelhouse. And that's the piece that excites me for
0: yeah, gotcha. I mean, being such a customer-centric brand that you've discussed, and the career that you had facing the customer is so you know like foundational. And then you go to the energy industry; it's not a very customer-oriented uh, industry, at least not traditionally. So I'm sure they saw your perspective as of complete value. So talk us more now. Take us from where you were in the product side, commercial product side, to um, the energy field. Give us sort of a history of your experience in the energy sector
1: as part of that career as part owner of an advertising agency. And as we look for a new business, we actually want a contract with the New Jersey utility during the time of deregulation. And so our assignment was to provide deregulation education, the engagement and community outreach for markets: African-American and Hispanic markets of New Jersey. We went on to do research and new business strategies with other utilities, because at that time, the utilities beyond being deregulated Regulated and having to deal with choice. They will also begin the phase of introducing new products and services that were unregulated services. So we got a chance to see how this industry continues to evolve. I've also spent time and hired it throughout the industry and led strategic communications for the American Association of Blacks and Energy ABE, as we like to refer it. So there's been a lot of experience hands-on for this industry. My solution team that managed solutions that work with the utilities to improve their customer response and receptivity to energy assistance programs. Some of the big takeaways is that customers, that companies see customers as rate and not customers, and therefore deal with them very differently. A second piece was the poor coordination between agencies and support services for LMI customers, and the focus was to get them only to pay their bill. The third and probably the biggest draw back from an assignment like that was the fact that individuals who in fact qualified for energy assistance don't want to be seen or referred to as LMI customers who need the assistance. And so for me, when I work on these projects and I share my marketing and communication experience, I look for the opportunity for each assignment to help me understand a little bit more this energy industry, to help me understand the nuances and what the interdependencies are across industry issues. And that's the way I build my industry knowledge.
0: Larry, that's an impressive journey because you cover so many different interest group perspectives and stakeholder perspectives. So tell us, you know, the Energy Central community covers a national audience. And given this, us the essential conversations today about equity and investing in, you know, the low and medium income communities, set the stage for us to define what this looks like and why the energy industry needs to pay attention to these principles, maybe more so than with other industries, particularly ones that you worked in.
1: Thanks, Jason, for the opportunity to to tee up this, because it is a really important industry issue. I'll start here. Recognizing that our utility system of connected utilities actually began in the early 1900s. There was a point where in 1910, for example, the U.S. population had 92 million people. We fast forward today, the census identified 331 million people in the U.S. My point is this. A population has more than tripled, which means that we see that the expansion of utility infrastructure has had to be continuous, and we know that it's ever changing. There's three key points that I'd like to make to set the stage for this energy transition. First is that the U.S. has set a goal to impact climate change. We've made the commitment to the Paris Accord, their national and statewide, and even local commitments to climate change, reduce greenhouse emissions, reduce carbon. Second, we've allocated historical sums of money to innovate and support this tremendous energy transition. But the real challenge for us when we talk about LMI communities is that so many of these communities are not ready to make this transition. And we as a nation cannot make a successful energy transition and leave these communities behind. In some cases, it's estimated that they are north of 20 percent of the communities that we look for. So we know all too often, whether these communities are rural or LMI communities or high burden communities or just communities that have been disinvested systemically for a long period of time. We know that these communities are also generally the ones with older housing stock extremely inefficient housing, density of multi-unit structures and with varying decision makers. It makes for a difficult process for us to achieve this. I make a reference to a YouTube segment that I recently viewed. It's called The Rational Middle. It was produced by a gentleman by the name of Gregory Callender. Great story because it talks about how do we make this energy transition? What's the difference between the coal mining towns of Kentucky or the woefully inefficient housing stock that's in some parts of Georgia and Alabama, he talked about the need for trust. They talk about the impact on those communities when their energy system does not provide the support. We see Jackson, Mississippi, we see Flint, Michigan, where the water side of the industry had terrible impacts on these communities. What we also know, Jason, is that these are the the same communities that have been disinvested through other industries as well. When we talk about communities that have been disinvested based on redlining and lower investment than those communities. When we talk about communities that don't have broadband, when we talk about communities who are food deserts or experience other health or environmental related issues, the challenge is that we cannot go forward and not address these communities. Importantly, in this energy transition, and we talk about what i like to term the big muscle movement projects, be they EV or transportation, be their electrification, be their grid modernization and alternative fuels. These are all critical measures, particularly for these LMI communities. When we talk about EVs and transportation as an example, we see that there is an adoption pattern. There's early adopters who generally get into the market quickly, then it moves more slowly Around the adapting period. In early 2022, of all of the vehicles on the road in the U.S., only about 1% of them were electric vehicles. So think about this when the goal is really 80-plus percent. And when you look at states like California, who's decided that after 2035, no combustion engines will be sold in the state, we see the arduous task that's ahead of us, and particularly for these communities. Then I turn to the this idea of electrification. And we talk about electrification and how do we move this system through this electrification without understanding the cost impact and the added burden of those communities. We also have to be concerned with how do we build and revise codes so that these communities will meet the new standards, not today, but in 2035 and 2050. When we talk about, for example, grid revitalization, we find that the critics often accuse utilities of a fix-to-failure strategy in these disinvested communities. What that says is that as the system has been built out, these disinvested communities, these are often communities where the repairs are done only after failure, which means that the technology advances that are implemented in these communities are really underinvested and have to be dealt with differently.
0: Larry, you've covered a lot of important topics there, and I want to ask you, you were at NARUC in D.C. I'm curious, what was the reaction like by the audience? Did you get any feedback from the regulators in the room or utilities executives in the audience who are listening to this message? Do you think it lands on an audience that is paying attention and is responsive? Just share with us, what was the kind of feedback you got by sharing these same sentiments to the audience back in February? The feedback was
1: actually really good. And I was really pleased to be able to discuss this issue with regulators. Because even as we understand that their core responsibility comes out of an economic regulated pattern where they are concerned about cost and rates and investment recovery and all of the economics of stabilizing. But in so many cases, these regulators, they stand between companies, the IOUs and the munis, the transmission and distribution companies on one side, and then the public to which they have the responsibility on the other. And as technology continues to advance, as we learn more and faster, they don't all always have the opportunity to learn as quickly as we do as industry experts. So sometimes they are then forced to to wear the striped shirt, if you will, if you will live with the analogy, that make sure that everyone abides by the rules, that We are looking to have a balance and impact on the economy. But then all of a sudden, they throw this thing called DEI and diversity on their laps, to which we know that they are not necessarily experts in that, but they have to judge and adjudicate with the thinking that DEI and equity are important measures for our industry now. So how do they do that? They only get that when they hear from subject matter experts who share new learning with them. And so for me, it was an absolute pleasure to talk with them and to help them see the world, the industry, through a different set of eyes. They become really important because the difference is, unlike a sporting event where you let the chips fall where they may, these regulators must guide us to a very specific outcome. And the outcome is to prepare these communities for this transition in energy future.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right. So with that in mind, ultimately, when do you know when you hit it? What does it look like? How will you know when when it's achieved? Just sort of paint that picture for us. Too many times
1: can we see equity as a destination, And you've heard me say this before, equity is not a destination. You can't get there and stop. But in fact, it's an action verb. It's about repetition. It's about doing the same things over and over. And so when we find a successful process, it's difficult. We should not be willing to walk away from that. But for me, the real goal here is not measuring equity. That's kind of like measuring effort. The real goal is to be able to measure impact. And how do we now measure impact for these LMI communities? Because as we talk about IRA and IJA, they're all based on impact to these communities. And so how do we begin to measure? What are the tools that we're looking at that help us to measure impact? Well, we know that there are energy burden tools that we're trying to determine how that impacts customer behavior based on their energy burden. The Department of Energy has has issued a tool that gives us 24 to 26 different factors that identifies what disinvested low to moderate income communities look like. There's also an equity screening tool that comes out of the Office of Environmental Justice and others. So the issue for me is not measuring equity. Like I said, it's kind of like measuring effort. We have to be able to establish a baseline and be able to measure the impact on these communities and these tools will help us to measure impact because that's the only way that we're going to see our way forward to this. It's knowing what we've done and our ability to replicate it.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so Larry, we're going to give you the last word, but first we want to learn more about you, the person, rather than just the professional. So we have something called the lightning round where we ask five questions and typically the response should be in a word or a phrase. So Larry, are you ready?
1: I am ready. I've seen this and I've seen others struggle with it. Some are doing really, really good. Okay, fantastic.
0: All right, so you shared with us that you're a regular listener of the Power Perspectives podcast, but I want to hear, what's another show you'd recommend for our listeners to check out from your rotation?
1: Give me a little bit of latitude on this.
0: Go ahead. No problem.
1: I listen for information and education. I look to be a a little bit smarter. For example, for a while back, you did a podcast called Creating Real Change with Talon Butler. I think he's a phenomenal leader and really the example of equity. But you also had a podcast here several weeks ago by Mina Byers from Nifor Gas, and she talked about the smart city approach in Illinois, I was really fascinated and really pretty riveted because she's talking about peeping around the corner and looking at cities in the future. I'm sorry, that was a really long answer, but those are two that have sparked me and I have been particular. I'm a sports guy as well. So Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp are high on my list along with this issue of slow burn, which is a historical perspective for podcasts.
0: Walk us through your perfect day off. I'm a
1: proud granddad, and so my perfect day would be an early morning call for my two youngest grandkids who make me smile every day. My wife has really spent a great deal of time building out a flowered back deck. Early morning reading becomes a great time for that. And for me, getting away in the afternoon and maybe getting in a round of golf is a perfect
0: day, off. Okay, we've never asked this question before. What's the first major splurge you'd make if you won the lottery?
1: I'm going to sound like a geek because i would solarized my home with battery storage. And not because I'm enamored by it, but I'd like to have a personal experience so when I talk about it, I know what I'm talking about. The other splurge is really my wife would like to have the BMW EV, I'm sure that would be on the
0: list. What would be an alternative career path if you hadn't found yourself falling into the energy industry?
1: I would be hopefully gearing for the Hall of Fame because I would have been a catcher for the New York Mets had I not gone into marketing and advertising.
0: How do you define success in your job and career? For me, it's
1: making a real difference. It's the ability that when I leave, I can point to a real value change. And working with LMI communities, I think that's a great place for me to to drop my stake.
0: Larry, thank you for giving us a peek into your your world. Much appreciated and certainly insightful. And I know that given that we have a lot of listeners on the C-suite, I'm sure there's a lot that they've appreciated, as well as your peers in the industry listening to this conversation today. So I want to thank you, but I also want to give you the final word. What's the final insight or advice you'd share based on your experience with feet on the ground in the thick of these issues?
1: I take this moment to offer the industry what I believe is one of the greatest underused resources that we have. And that's the ability to partner with HBCUs, historically black college and universities. I mentioned earlier that I am a proud graduate of HBCUs, but HBCUs are represented by 50% of the Black professional in the US. They overwhelmingly provide 40% of black graduate degrees across science and technology, 23% among them. There are 109 institutions over 25 states and represent 323,000 students annually. As an industry, we don't collaborate with these HBCUs because they are also, in all of these communities that I talk about, they are situated oftentimes in the center of those communities that are greatest influencers. They have the academic rigor. They provide the facilities challenge. I think that as we go forward and try and build innovative plans forward, we've missed the opportunity to work with HBCUs and use them as critical partners as we move forward in this energy transition. So my last word would be industry. Wake up. Take a look at these HBCUs. They're a great resource that we're not using as well as we could.
0: Absolutely. They have some very strong engineering programs, and I've been a number of graduates. They're quite impressive and talented. So I agree with you. Yeah, I say my two roommates in, in college were engineers
1: and much better set for this.
0: This has been really insightful. We really appreciate your time. And we certainly welcome our listeners to share their thoughts and perspectives, including posting questions and Larry would welcome your feedback on any of those uh, questions that people may have posed to you so definitely keep an eye on this podcast and the dialogue that will come from it so until then uh, we would just want to thank you and uh, much appreciate again sharing your insight in today's show
1: Jason yes, thank you very much it's been a wonderful experience and I'm humbly grateful thank you
0: as are we so you can always reach Larry through the Energy Central platform where he welcomes your questions and comments and we also want to give a shout out of thanks to the podcast sponsor that made today's episode possible. Thanks to West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest electric, gas, and water utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. West Monroe brings a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise to address modernizing aging infrastructure, advisory on transportation electrification, ADMS deployments, data and analytics, and cybersecurity. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com, and we'll see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast.